Chapter twelve of Biographia Literaria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. Biographia Literaria by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Chapter twelve. A chapter of requests and premonitions concerning the perusal or omission of the chapter that follows. In the perusal of philosophical works, I have been greatly benefited by a resolve which in the antithetic form and with the allowed quaintness of an adage or maxim i have been accustomed to word thus until you understand a writer's ignorance presume yourself ignorant of his understanding this golden rule of mine does i own resemble those of pythagoras in its obscurity rather than in its depth if however the reader will permit me to be my own hierocles i trust that he will find its meaning fully explained by the following instances i have now before me a treatise of a religious fanatic full of dreams and supernatural experiences i see clearly the writer's grounds and their hollowness i have a complete insight into the causes which through the medium of his body has acted on his mind and by application of received and ascertained laws i can satisfactorily explain to my own reason all the strange incidents which the writer records of himself and this i can do without suspecting him of any intentional falsehood as when in broad daylight a man tracks the steps of a traveller who had lost his way in a fog or by a treacherous moonshine even so and with the same tranquil sense of certainty can i follow the traces of this bewildered visionary i understand his ignorance on the other hand i have been reperusing with the best energies of my mind the timaeus of plato whatever i comprehend impresses me with a reverential sense of the author's genius but there is a considerable portion of the work to which i can attach no consistent meaning in other treatises of the same philosopher intended for the average comprehensions of men i have been delighted with the masterly good sense with the perspicuity of the language and the aptness of the inductions i recollect likewise that numerous passages in this author which i thoroughly comprehend were formerly no less unintelligible to me than the passages now in question it would i am aware be quite fashionable to dismiss them at once as platonic jargon but this i cannot do with satisfaction to my own mind because I have sought in vain for causes adequate to the solution of the assumed inconsistency. I have no insight into the possibility of a man so eminently wise, using words with such half-meanings to himself, as must perforce pass into no meaning to his readers, when, in addition to the motives thus suggested by my own reason, I bring into distinct remembrance the number and the series of great men who, after long and zealous study of these works, had joined in honouring the name of Plato with epithets that almost transcend humanity, I feel that a contemptuous verdict on my part might argue want of modesty, but would hardly be received by the judicious as evidence of superior penetration. Therefore, utterly baffled in all my attempts to understand the ignorance of Plato, I conclude myself ignorant of his understanding. In lieu of the various requests which the anxiety of authorship addresses to the unknown reader, I advance but this one, that he will either pass over the following chapter altogether, or read the whole connectedly. The fairest part of the most beautiful body will appear deformed and monstrous, if dissevered from its place in the organic whole. Nay, on delicate subjects, where a seemingly trifling difference of more or less may constitute a difference in kind, even a faithful display of the main and supporting ideas, if yet they are separated from the forms by which they are at once clothed and modified, may perchance present a skeleton indeed, but a skeleton to alarm and deter. Though I might find numerous precedents, I shall not desire the reader to strip his mind of all prejudices, nor to keep all prior systems out of view during his examination of the present, for in truth such requests appear to me not much unlike the advice given to hypochondriacal patients in Dr. Buchan's domestic medicine, vide licet, 
to preserve themselves uniformly tranquil and in good spirits till i discovered the art of destroying the memory a parte post without injury to its future operations and without detriment to the judgment i should suppress the request as premature and therefore however much i may wish to be read with an unprejudiced mind i do not presume to state it as a necessary condition the extent of my daring is to suggest one criterion by which it may be rationally conjectured beforehand whether or no a reader would lose his time and perhaps his temper in the perusal of this or any other treatise constructed on similar principles but it would be cruelly misinterpreted as implying the least disrespect either for the moral or intellectual qualities of the individuals thereby precluded the criterion is this if a man receives as fundamental facts and therefore of course indemonstrable and incapable of further analysis the general notions of matter spirit soul body action passiveness time space cause and effect consciousness perception memory and habit if he feels his mind completely at rest concerning all these and is satisfied if only he can analyse all other notions into some one or more of these supposed elements with plausible subordination and apt arrangement to such a mind i would as courteously as possible convey the hint that for him the chapter was not written via bonus est doctors prudens est how tibi spiro for these terms do in truth include all the difficulties which the human mind can propose for solution taking them therefore in mass and unexamined it required only a decent apprenticeship in logic to draw forth their contents in all forms and colours as the professors of legerdemain at our village fairs pull out ribbon after ribbon from their mouths and not more difficult is it to reduce them back again to their different genera but though this analysis is highly useful in rendering our knowledge more distinct it does not really add to it it does not increase though it gives us a greater mastery over the wealth which we before possessed for forensic purposes for all the established professions of society this is sufficient but for philosophy in its higher sense as a science of ultimate truths and therefore scientia scientiarum this mere analysis of terms is preparative only though as a preparative discipline indispensable still less dare a favourable perusal be anticipated from the proselytes of that compendious philosophy which talking of mind but thinking of brick and mortar or other images equally abstracted from body contrives a theory of spirit by nicknaming matter and in a few hours can qualify its dullest disciples to explain the omne scibile by reducing all things to impressions ideas and sensations but it is time to tell the truth though it requires some courage to avow it in an age and country in which disquisitions on all subjects not privileged to adopt technical terms or scientific symbols must be addressed to the public i say then that it is neither possible nor necessary for all men nor for many to be philosophers there is a philosophic and inasmuch as it is actualized by an effort of freedom and artificial consciousness which lies beneath or as it were behind the spontaneous consciousness natural to all reflecting beings as the elder romans distinguished their northern provinces into cisalpine and transalpine so may we divide all the objects of human knowledge into those on this side and those on the other side of the spontaneous consciousness citra et trans conscientiam communem the latter is exclusively the domain of pure philosophy which is therefore properly entitled transcendental in order to discriminate it at once both from mere reflection and representation on the one hand and on the other from those flights of lawless speculation which abandoned by all distinct consciousness because transgressing the bounds and purposes of our intellectual faculties are justly condemned as transcendent the first range of hills that encircles the scanty veil of human life is the horizon for the majority of its inhabitants on its ridges the common sun is born and departs from them the stars rise and touching them they vanish by the many even this range the natural limit and bulwark of the vale is but imperfectly known 
its higher ascents are too often hidden by mists and clouds from uncultivated swamps which few have courage or curiosity to penetrate to the multitude below these vapours appear now as the dark horns of terrific agents on which none may intrude with impunity and now all aglow with colours not their own they are gazed at as the splendid palaces of happiness and power but in all ages there have been a few who measuring and sounding the rivers of the vale at the feet of their furthest inaccessible falls have learned that the sources must be far higher and far inward a few who even in the level streams have detected elements which neither the vale itself nor the surrounding mountains contained or could supply how and whence do these thoughts these strong probabilities the ascertaining vision the intuitive knowledge may finally supervene can be learnt only by the fact i might oppose to the question the words with which plotinus supposes nature to answer a similar difficulty should any one interrogate her how she works if graciously she vouchsafed to listen and speak she will reply it behoves thee not to disquiet me with interrogatories but to understand in silence even as i am silent and work without words likewise in the fifth book of the fifth aeneid speaking of the highest in intuitive knowledge as distinguished from the discursive or in the language of wordsworth the vision and the faculty divine he says it is not lawful to inquire from whence it sprang as if it were a thing subject to place and motion for it neither approach hither nor again departs from hence to some other place but it either appears to us or it does not appear so that we ought not to pursue it with a view of detecting its secret source but to watch in quiet till it suddenly shines upon us preparing ourselves for the blessed spectacle as the eye waits patiently for the rising sun they and they only can acquire the philosophic imagination the sacred power of self-intuition who within themselves can interpret and understand the symbol that the wings of the air sylph are forming within the skin of the caterpillar those only who feel in their own spirits the same instinct which impels the chrysalis of the horned fly to leave room in its involucrum for antenna yet to come they know and feel that the potential works in them even as the actual works on them in short all the organs of sense are framed for a corresponding world of sense and we have it all the organs of spirit are framed for a correspondent world of spirit though the latter organs are not developed in all alike but they exist in all and their first appearance discloses itself in the moral being how else could it be that even worldlings not wholly debased will contemplate the man of simple and disinterested goodness with contradictory feelings of pity and respect poor man he is not made for this world oh herein they utter a prophecy of universal fulfilment for man must either rise or sink it is the essential mark of the true philosopher to rest satisfied with no imperfect light as long as the impossibility of attaining a fuller knowledge has not been demonstrated that the common consciousness itself will furnish proofs by its own direction that it is connected with master currents below the surface i shall merely assume as a postulate pro tempore this having been granted though but in expectation of the argument i can safely deduce from it the equal truth of my former assertion that philosophy cannot be intelligible to all even of the most learned and cultivated classes a system the first principle of which it is to render the mind intuitive of the spiritual in man i e of that which lies on the other side of our natural consciousness must needs have a great obscurity for those who have never disciplined and strengthened this ulterior consciousness it must in truth be a land of darkness a perfect anti-goshen for men to whom the noblest treasures of their own being are reported only through the imperfect translation of lifeless and sightless motions perhaps in great part through words which are but the shadows of notions even as the notional understanding itself is but the shadowy abstraction of living and actual truth on the immediate which dwells in every man and on the original intuition or absolute affirmation of it which is likewise in every man but does not in every man rise into consciousness 
all the certainty of our knowledge depends and this becomes intelligible to no man by the ministry of mere words from without the medium by which spirits understand each other is not the surrounding air but the freedom which they possess in common as a common ethereal element of their being the tremulous reciprocations of which propagate themselves even to the inmost of the soul where the spirit of a man is not filled with the consciousness of freedom were it only from its restlessness as of one still struggling in bondage all spiritual intercourse is interrupted not only with others but even with himself no wonder then that he remains incomprehensible to himself as well as to others no wonder that in the fearful desert of his consciousness he wearies himself out with empty words to which no friendly echo answers either from his own heart or the heart of a fellow-being or bewilders himself in the pursuit of notional phantoms the mere refractions from unseen and distant truths through the distorting medium of his own unenlivened and stagnant understanding to remain unintelligible to such a mind exclaimed schelling on a like occasion is honour and a good name before god and man the history of philosophy the same writer observes contains instances of systems which for successive generations have remained enigmatic such he deems the system of leibnitz whom another writer rashly i think and invidiously extols as the only philosopher who was himself deeply convinced of his own doctrines as hitherto interpreted however they have not produced the effect which leibnitz himself in a most instructive passage describes as the criterion of a true philosophy namely that it would at once explain and collect the fragments of truth scattered through systems apparently the most incongruous the truth says he is diffused more widely than is commonly believed but it is often painted yet oftener masked and is sometimes mutilated and sometimes alas in close alliance with mischievous errors the deeper however we penetrate into the ground of things the more truth we discover in the doctrines of the greater number of the philosophical sects the want of substantial reality in the objects of the senses according to the sceptics the harmonies or numbers the prototypes and ideas to which the pythagoreans and platonists reduced all things the one and all of parmenides and plotinus without spinozism the necessary connection of things according to the stoics reconcilable with the spontaneity of the other schools the vital philosophy of the cabalists and hermetists who assume the universality of sensation the substantial forms and entelechies of aristotle and the schoolmen together with the mechanical solution of all particular phenomena according to democritus and the recent philosophers all these we shall find united in one perspective central point which shows regularity and a coincidence of all the parts in the very object which from every other point of view must appear confused and distorted the spirit of sectarianism has been hitherto our fault and the cause of our failures we have imprisoned our own conceptions by the lines which we have drawn in order to exclude the conceptions of others je trouve que la plupart des sectes en raison dans une bonne partie de ce qu'elle avance mais non pas tant en ce qu'elle nie a system which aims to deduce the memory with all the other functions of intelligence must of course place its first position from beyond the memory and anterior to it otherwise the principle of solution would be itself a part of the problem to be solved such a position therefore must in the first instance be demanded and the first question will be by what right is it demanded on this account i think it expedient to make some preliminary remarks on the introduction of postulates in philosophy the word postulate is borrowed from the science of mathematics in geometry the primary construction is not demonstrated but postulated this first and most simple construction in space is the point in motion or the line whether the point is moved in one and the same direction or whether its direction is continually changed remains as yet undetermined but if the direction of the point have been determined it is either by a point without it and then there arises the straight line which encloses no space or the direction of the point is not determined by a point without it 
and then it must flow back again on itself that is there arises a cyclical line which does enclose a space if the straight line be assumed as the positive the cyclical is then the negation of the straight it is a line which at no point strikes out into the straight but changes its direction continuously but if the primary line be conceived as undetermined and the straight line as determined throughout then the cyclical is the third compounded of both it is at once undetermined and determined undetermined through any point without and determined through itself geometry therefore supplies philosophy with the example of a primary intuition from which every science that lays claim to evidence must take its commencement the mathematician does not begin with a demonstrable proposition but with an intuition a practical idea but here an important distinction presents itself philosophy is employed on objects of the inner sense and cannot like geometry appropriate to every construction a correspondent outward intuition nevertheless philosophy if it is to arrive at evidence must proceed from the most original construction and the question then is what is the most original construction or first productive act for the inner sense the answer to this question depends on the direction which is given to the inner sense but in philosophy the inner sense cannot have its direction determined by an outward object to the original construction of the line i can be compelled by a line drawn before me on the slate or on sand the stroke thus drawn is indeed not the line itself but only the image or picture of the line it is not from it that we first learn to know the line but on the contrary we bring this stroke to the original line generated by the act of the imagination otherwise we could not define it as without breadth or thickness still however this stroke is the sensuous image of the original or ideal line and an efficient mean to excite every imagination to the intuition of it it is demanded then whether there be found any means in philosophy to determine the direction of the inner sense as in mathematics it is determinable by its specific image or outward picture now the inner sense has its direction determined for the greater part only by an act of freedom one man's consciousness extends only to the pleasant or unpleasant sensations caused in him by external impressions another enlarges his inner sense to a consciousness of forms and quantity a third in addition to the image is conscious of the conception or notion of the thing a fourth attains to a notion of his notions he reflects on his own reflections and thus we may say without impropriety that the one possesses more or less inner sense than the other this more or less betrays already that philosophy in its first principles must have a practical or moral as well as a theoretical or speculative side this difference in degree does not exist in the mathematics socrates in plato shows that an ignorant slave may be brought to understand and of himself to solve the most difficult geometrical problem socrates drew the figures for the slave in the sand the disciples of the critical philosophy could likewise as was indeed actually done by la forge and some other followers of descartes represent the origin of our representations in copper plates but no one has yet attempted it and it would be utterly useless to an eskimo or new zealander our most popular philosophy would be wholly unintelligible the sense the inward organ for it is not yet born in him so is there many a one among us yes and some who think themselves philosophers too to whom the philosophic organ is entirely wanting to such a man philosophy is a mere play of words and notions like a theory of music to the deaf or like the geometry of light to the blind the connection of the parts and their logical dependencies may be seen and remembered but the whole is groundless and hollow unsustained by living contact unaccompanied with any realizing intuition which exists by and in the act that affirms its existence which is known because it is and is because it is known the words of plotinus in the assumed person of nature hold true of the philosophic energy to theoron mu theorema poi osper oegeometrai theorontes graphosin 
alemon me grafusis, thirusis de ufistantai, aiton somaton grammai. With me, the act of contemplation makes the thing contemplated, as the geometricians contemplating describe lines correspondent. But I not describing lines, but simply contemplating, the representative forms of things rise up into existence. The postulate of philosophy, and at the same time the test of philosophic capacity, is no other than the heaven-descended, Know thyself, Esilo descendit, know thee seoton, and this at once practically and speculatively. For as philosophy is neither a science of the reason or understanding only, nor merely a science of morals, but the science of being altogether, its primary ground can be neither merely speculative nor merely practical, but both in one. All knowledge rests on the coincidence of an object with a subject. My readers have been warned in a former chapter that, for their convenience as well as the writers, the term subject is used by me in its scholastic sense as equivalent to mind or sentient being, and as a necessary correlative of object or quicquid objicitur menti. For we can know that only which is true, and the truth is universally placed in the coincidence of the thought with the thing, of the representation with the object represented. Now the sum of all that is merely objective we will henceforth call nature, confining the term to its passive and material sense, as comprising all the phenomena by which its existence is made known to us. On the other hand, the sum of all that is subjective we may comprehend in the name of the self or intelligence. Both conceptions are in necessary antithesis. Intelligence is conceived of as exclusively representative, nature as exclusively represented, the one as conscious, the other as without consciousness. Now in all acts of positive knowledge there is required a reciprocal concurrence of both, namely of the conscious being, and of that which is in itself unconscious. Our problem is to explain this concurrence, its possibility, and its necessity. During the act of knowledge itself, the objective and subjective are so instantly united, that we cannot determine to which of the two the priority belongs. There is here no first and no second, both are co-instantaneous and one. While I am attempting to explain this intimate coalition, I must suppose it dissolved. I must necessarily set out from the one, to which therefore I give hypothetical antecedents, in order to arrive at the other. But as there are but two factors or elements in the problem, subject and object, and as it is left indeterminate from which of them I should commence, there are two cases equally possible. 1. Either the objective is taken as the first, and then we have to account for the supervention of the subjective, which coalesces with it. The notion of the subjective is not contained in the notion of the objective. On the contrary, they mutually exclude each other. The subjective, therefore, must supervene to the objective. The conception of nature does not apparently involve the co-presence of an intelligence making an ideal duplicate of it, that is, representing it. This desk, for instance, would, according to our natural notions, be, though there should exist no sentient being to look at it. This, then, is the problem of natural philosophy. It assumes the objective or unconscious nature as the first, and as, therefore, to explain how intelligence can supervene to it, or how itself can grow into intelligence. If it should appear that all enlightened naturalists, without having distinctly proposed the problem to themselves, have yet constantly moved in the line of its solution, it must afford a strong presumption that the problem itself is founded in nature. For if all knowledge has, as it were, two poles reciprocally required and presupposed, all sciences must proceed from the one or the other, and must tend toward the opposite as far as the equatorial point in which both are reconciled and become identical. The necessary tendency, therefore, of all natural philosophy is from nature to intelligence, and this and no other is the true ground and occasion of the instinctive striving to introduce theory into our views of natural phenomena. 
the highest perfection of natural philosophy would consist in the perfect spiritualization of all the laws of nature into laws of intuition and intellect the phenomena the material must wholly disappear and the laws alone the formal must remain thence it comes that in nature itself the more the principle of law breaks forth the more does the husk drop off the phenomena themselves become more spiritual and at length cease altogether in our consciousness the optical phenomena are but a geometry the lines of which are drawn by light and the materiality of this light itself has already become matter of doubt in the appearances of magnetism all trace of matter is lost and of the phenomena of gravitation which not a few among the most illustrious newtonians have declared no otherwise comprehensible than as an immediate spiritual influence there remains nothing but its law the execution of which on a vast scale is the mechanism of the heavenly motions the theory of natural philosophy would then be completed when all nature was demonstrated to be identical in essence with that which in its highest known power exists in man as intelligence and self-consciousness when the heavens and the earth shall declare not only the power of their maker but the glory and the presence of their god even as he appeared to the great prophet during the vision of the mount in the skirts of his divinity this may suffice to show that even natural science which commences with the material phenomenon as the reality and substance of things existing does yet by the necessity of theorizing unconsciously and as it were instinctively end in nature as an intelligence and by this tendency the science of nature becomes finally natural philosophy the one of the two poles of fundamental science two or the subjective is taken as the first and the problem then is how there supervenes to it a coincident objective in the pursuit of these sciences our success in each depends on an austere and faithful adherence to its own principles with a careful separation and exclusion of those which appertain to the opposite science as the natural philosopher who directs his views to the objective avoids above all things the intermixture of the subjective in his knowledge as for instance arbitrary suppositions or rather sufflictions occult qualities spiritual agents and the substitution of final for efficient causes so on the other hand the transcendental or intelligential philosopher is equally anxious to preclude all interpolation of the objective into the subjective principles of his science as for instance the assumption of impresses or configurations in the brain correspondent to miniature pictures on the retina painted by rays of light from supposed originals which are not the immediate and real objects of vision but deductions from it for the purposes of explanation this purification of the mind is effected by an absolute and scientific scepticism to which the mind voluntarily determines itself for the specific purpose of future certainty descartes who in his meditations himself first at least of the moderns gave a beautiful example of this voluntary doubt this self-determined indetermination happily expresses its utter difference from the scepticism of vanity or irreligion nectamen in scepticos imitaba qui dubitant tantum ut dubitent et praeta incertitudinem ipsam nihil quirent nam contra totus in eo eram ut aliquid certi reperirem nor is it less distinct in its motives and final aim than in its proper objects which are not as in ordinary scepticism the prejudices of education and circumstance but those original and innate prejudices which nature herself has planted in all men and which to all but the philosopher are the first principles of knowledge and the final test of truth now these essential prejudices are all reducible to the one fundamental presumption that there exist things without us as this on the one hand originates neither in grounds nor arguments and yet on the other hand remains proof against all attempts to remove it by grounds or arguments naturam foca expellus tamen usque redibit on the one hand lays claim to immediate certainty as a position at once indemonstrable and irresistible 
and yet on the other hand inasmuch as it refers to something essentially different from ourselves nay even in opposition to ourselves leaves it inconceivable how it could possibly become a part of our immediate consciousness in other words how that which ex hypothesi is and continues to be extrinsic and alien to our being should become a modification of our being the philosopher therefore compels himself to treat this faith as nothing more than a prejudice innate indeed and connatural but still a prejudice the other position which not only claims but necessitates the admission of its immediate certainty equally for the scientific reason of the philosopher as for the common sense of mankind at large namely i am cannot so properly be entitled a prejudice it is groundless indeed but then in the very idea it precludes all ground and separated from the immediate consciousness loses its whole sense and import it is groundless but only because it is itself the ground of all other certainty now the apparent contradiction that the former position namely the existence of things without us which from its nature cannot be immediately certain should be received as blindly and as independently of all grounds as the existence of our own being the transcendental philosopher can solve only by the supposition that the former is unconsciously involved in the latter that it is not only coherent but identical and one and the same thing with our own immediate self-consciousness to demonstrate this identity is the office and object of his philosophy if it be said that this is idealism let it be remembered that it is only so far idealism as it is at the same time and on that very account the truest and most binding realism for wherein does the realism of mankind properly consist in the assertion that there exists a something without them what or how or where they know not which occasions the objects of their perception oh no this is neither connatural nor universal it is what a few have taught and learned in the schools and which the many repeat without asking themselves concerning their own meaning the realism common to all mankind is far elder and lies infinitely deeper than this hypothetical explanation of the origin of our perceptions an explanation skimmed from the mere surface of mechanical philosophy it is the table itself which the man of common sense believes himself to see not the phantom of a table from which he may argumentatively deduce the reality of a table which he does not see if to destroy the reality of all that we actually behold be idealism what can be more egregiously so than the system of modern metaphysics which banishes us to a land of shadows surrounds us with apparitions and distinguishes truth from illusion only by the majority of those who dream the same dream i asserted that the world was mad exclaimed poor lee and the world said that i was mad and confound them they outvoted me it is to the true and original realism that i would direct the attention this believes and requires neither more nor less than the object which it beholds or presents to itself is the real and very object in this sense however much we may strive against it we are all collectively born idealists and therefore and only therefore are we at the same time realists but of this the philosophers of the schools know nothing or despise the faith as the prejudice of the ignorant vulgar because they live and move in a crowd of phrases and notions from which human nature has long ago vanished o ye that reverence yourselves and walk humbly with the divinity in your own hearts ye are worthy of a better philosophy let the dead bury the dead but do you preserve your human nature the depth of which was never yet fathomed by a philosophy made up of notions and mere logical entities in the third treatise of my logosophia announced at the end of this volume i shall give deo valente the demonstrations and constructions of the dynamic philosophy scientifically arranged it is according to my conviction no other than the system of pythagoras and of plato revived and purified from impure mixtures doctrina per tot manus tradita tandem in vapen desiet 
the science of arithmetic furnishes instances that a rule may be useful in practical application and for the particular purpose may be sufficiently authenticated by the result before it has itself been fully demonstrated it is enough if only it be rendered intelligible this will i trust have been effected in the following theses for those of my readers who are willing to accompany me through the following chapter in which the results will be applied to the deduction of the imagination and with it the principles of production and of genial criticism in the fine arts thesis one truth is correlative to being knowledge without a correspondent reality is no knowledge if we know there must be somewhat known by us to know is in its very essence a verb active thesis two all truth is either mediate that is derived from some other truth or truths or immediate and original the latter is absolute and its formula a a the former is of dependent or conditional certainty and represented in the formula b a the certainty which adheres in a is attributable to b scholium a chain without a staple from which all the links derive their stability or a series without a first has been not inaptly allegorized as a string of blind men each holding the skirt of the man before him reaching far out of sight but all moving without the least deviation in one straight line it would be naturally taken for granted that there was a guide at the head of the file what if it were answered no sir the men are without number and infinite blindness supplies the place of sight equally inconceivable is a cycle of equal truths without a common and central principle which prescribes to each its proper sphere in the system of science that the absurdity does not so immediately strike us that it does not seem equally unimaginable is owing to a surreptitious act of the imagination which instinctively and without our noticing the same not only fills up the intervening spaces and contemplates the cycle of b c d e f etc as a continuous circle a giving to all collectively the unity of their common orbit but likewise supplies by a sort of sub the one central power which renders the movement harmonious and cyclical thesis three we are to seek therefore for some absolute truth capable of communicating to other positions a certainty which it has not itself borrowed a truth self-grounded unconditional and known by its own light in short we have to find a somewhat which is simply because it is in order to be such it must be one which is its own predicate so far at least that all other nominal predicates must be modes and repetitions of itself its existence too must be such as to preclude the possibility of requiring a cause or antecedent without an absurdity thesis four that there can be but one such principle may be proved a priori for were there two or more each must refer to some other by which its equality is affirmed consequently neither would be self-established as the hypothesis demands and a posteriori it will be proved by the principle itself when it is discovered as involving universal antecedents in its very conception scholium if we affirm of a board that it is blue the predicate blue is accidental and not implied in the subject board if we affirm of a circle that it is equiradial the predicate indeed is implied in the definition of the subject but the existence of the subject itself is contingent and supposes both a cause and a percipient the same reasoning will apply to the indefinite number of supposed indemonstrable truths exempted from the profane approach of philosophic investigation by the amiable beatty and other less eloquent and not more profound inaugurators of common sense on the throne of philosophy a fruitless attempt were it only that it is the twofold function of philosophy to reconcile reason with common sense and to elevate common sense into reason thesis five such a principle cannot be any thing or object each thing is what it is in consequence of some other thing an infinite independent thing is no less a contradiction 
than an infinite circle or a sideless triangle besides a thing is that which is capable of being an object which itself is not the sole percipient but an object is inconceivable without a subject as its antithesis omne perceptum percipientens upon it but neither can the principle be found in a subject as a subject contradistinguished from an object for uniquique percipienti aliquid objicitur perceptum it is to be found therefore neither in object nor subject taken separately and consequently as no other third is conceivable it must be found in that which is neither subject nor object exclusively but which is the identity of both thesis six this principle and so characterized manifests itself in the sum or i am which i shall hereafter indiscriminately express by the words spirit self and self-consciousness in this and in this alone object and subject being and knowing are identical each involving and supposing the other in other words it is a subject which becomes a subject by the act of constructing itself objectively to itself but which never is an object except for itself and only so far as by the very same act it becomes a subject it may be described therefore as a perpetual self-duplication of one and the same power into object and subject which presuppose each other and can exist only as antitheses scholium if a man be asked how he knows that he is he can only answer sum quia sum but if the absoluteness of this certainty having been admitted he be again asked how he the individual person came to be then in relation to the ground of his existence not to the ground of his knowledge of that existence he might reply sum quia deus est or still more philosophically sum quia in deo sum but if we elevate our conception to the absolute self the great eternal i am then the principle of being and of knowledge of idea and of reality the ground of existence and the ground of the knowledge of existence are absolutely identical sum quia sum i am because i affirm myself to be i affirm myself to be because i am thesis seven if then i know myself only through myself it is contradictory to require any other predicate of self but that of self-consciousness only in the self-consciousness of a spirit is there the required identity of object and of representation for herein consists the essence of a spirit that it is self-representative if therefore this be the one only immediate truth in the certainty of which the reality of our collective knowledge is grounded it must follow that the spirit in all the objects which it views views only itself if this could be proved the immediate reality of all intuitive knowledge would be assured it has been shown that a spirit is that which is its own object yet not originally an object but an absolute subject for which all itself included may become an object it must therefore be an act for every object is as an object dead fixed incapable in itself of any action and necessarily finite again the spirit originally the identity of object and subject must in some sense dissolve this identity in order to be conscious of it fit alter et idem but this implies an act and it follows therefore that intelligence or self-consciousness is impossible except by and in a will the self-conscious spirit therefore is a will and freedom must be assumed as a ground of philosophy and can never be deduced from it thesis eight whatever in its origin is objective is likewise as such necessarily finite therefore since the spirit is not originally an object and as the subject exists in antithesis to an object the spirit cannot originally be finite but neither can it be a subject without becoming an object and as it is originally the identity of both it can be conceived neither as infinite nor finite exclusively but as the most original union of both in the existence in the reconciling and the recurrence of this contradiction consists the process and mystery of production and life thesis nine 
this principium commune essendi et cognoscendi as subsisting in a will or primary act of self-duplication is the mediate or indirect principle of every science but it is the immediate and direct principle of the ultimate science alone i e of transcendental philosophy alone for it must be remembered that all these theses refer solely to one of the two polar sciences namely to that which commences with and rigidly confines itself within the subjective leaving the objective as far as it is exclusively objective to natural philosophy which is its opposite pole in its very idea therefore as a systematic knowledge of our collective knowing scientia scientiae it involves the necessity of some one highest principle of knowing as at once a source and accompanying form in all particular acts of intellect and perception this it has been shown can be found only in the act and evolution of self-consciousness we are not investigating an absolute principium essendi for then i admit many valid objections might be started against our theory but an absolute principium cognoscendi the result of both the sciences or the equatorial point would be the principle of a total and undivided philosophy as for prudential reasons i have chosen to anticipate in the scholium to thesis six and the notes subjoined in other words philosophy would pass into religion and religion become inclusive of philosophy we begin with the i know myself in order to end with the absolute i am we proceed from the self in order to lose and find all self in god thesis ten the transcendental philosopher does not inquire what ultimate ground of our knowledge there may lie out of our knowing but what is the last in our knowing itself beyond which we cannot pass the principle of our knowing is sought within the sphere of our knowing it must be something therefore which can itself be known it is asserted only that the act of self-consciousness is for us the source and principle of all our possible knowledge whether abstracted from us there exists anything higher and beyond this primary self-knowing which is for us the form of all our knowing must be decided by the result that the self-consciousness is the fixed point to which for us all is mortised and annexed needs no further proof but that the self-consciousness may be the modification of a higher form of being perhaps of a higher consciousness and this again of a yet higher and so on in an infinite regressus in short that self-consciousness may be itself something explicable into something which must lie beyond the possibility of our knowledge because the whole synthesis of our intelligence is first formed in and through the self-consciousness does not at all concern us as transcendental philosophers for to us self-consciousness is not a kind of being but a kind of knowing and that too the highest and furthest that exists for us it may however be shown and has in part already been shown earlier that even when the objective is assumed as the first we yet can never pass beyond the principle of self-consciousness should we attempt it we must be driven back from ground to ground each of which would cease to be a ground the moment we pressed on it we must be whirled down the gulf of an infinite series but this would make our reason baffle the end and purpose of all reason namely unity and system or we must break off the series arbitrarily and affirm an absolute something that is in and of itself at once cause and effect causa sui subject and object or rather the absolute identity of both but as this is inconceivable except in a self-consciousness it follows that even as natural philosophers we must arrive at the same principle from which as transcendental philosophers we set out that is in a self-consciousness in which the principium ascendi does not stand to the principium cognoscendi in the relation of cause to effect but both the one and the other are coherent and identical thus the true system of natural philosophy places the sole reality of things in an absolute which is at once causa sui et effectus pate autopator vios heutu in the absolute identity of subject and object which it calls nature 
and which in its highest power is nothing else than self-conscious will or intelligence. In this sense, the position of Malebranche, that we see all things in God, is a strict philosophical truth, and equally true is the assertion of Hobbes, of Hartley, and of their masters in ancient Greece, that all real knowledge supposes a prior sensation, for sensation itself is but vision nascent, not the cause of intelligence, but intelligence itself revealed as an earlier power in the process of self-construction. Maka ilathimoi, peter ilathimoi, ei paracosmon, ei paramoiran, tonson ethigon. Bearing then this in mind, that intelligence is a self-development, not a quality supervening to a substance, we may abstract from all degree, and for the purpose of philosophic construction, reduce it to kind, under the idea of an indestructible power, with two opposite and counteracting forces, which by a metaphor borrowed from astronomy, we may call the centrifugal and centripetal forces. The intelligence in the one tends to objectize itself, and in the other to know itself in the object. It will be hereafter my business to construct by a series of intuitions the progressive schemes that must follow from such a power with such forces, till I arrive at the fullness of the human intelligence. For my present purpose I assume such a power as my principle, in order to deduce from it a faculty, the generation, agency, and application of which form the contents of the ensuing chapter. In a preceding page I have justified the use of technical terms in philosophy whenever they tend to preclude confusion of thought and when they assist the memory by the exclusive singleness of their meaning, more than they may for a short time bewilder the attention by their strangeness. I trust that I have not extended this privilege beyond the grounds on which I have claimed it, namely the conveniency of the scholastic phrase to distinguish the kind from all degrees, or rather to express the kind with the abstraction of degree, as, for instance, multeity instead of multitude, or, secondly, for the sake of correspondence in sound in interdependent or antithetical terms, as subject and object, or lastly, to avoid the wearing recurrence of circumlocutions and definitions. Thus I shall venture to use potence in order to express a specific degree of a power, in imitation of the algebraists. I have even hazarded the new verb potentiate with its derivatives, in order to express the combination or transfer of powers. It is with new or unusual terms, as with privileges in courts of justice or legislature, there can be no legitimate privilege, where there already exists a positive law adequate to the purpose and when there is no law in existence the privilege is to be justified by its accordance with the end or final cause of all law unusual and new coined words are doubtless an evil but vagueness confusion and imperfect conveyance of our thoughts are far greater every system which is under the necessity of using terms not familiarized by the metaphysics in fashion will be described as written in an unintelligible style and the author must expect the charge of having substituted learned jargon for clear conception while according to the creed of our modern philosophers nothing is deemed a clear conception but what is representable by a distinct image thus the conceivable is reduced within the bounds of the picturable hinc patet qui fiat ut cum irrepresentabile et impossibile vulgo eustem significatus habeanto conceptus tam continui quam infiniti a plurimus regicianto quipe quorum secundum leges cognitionis intuitivae representatio es impossibilis quenquam autem harum e non paucis scholis explosarum notionum praesertim prioris causam hic non gero maxmi tamen momendi erit monuese gravissimo illos errore labi qui tam perverse argumentandi ratione utuntur quicquid enim repugnat legibus intellectus et rationis utique es impossibile quod autem cum rationis purisit objectum 
legibus cognitionis intuitivae tantum modo non subes non item non hic dissensus inter facultatem sensitivam et intellectualem quarum indolem mox exponam nihil indigita nisi quas mens ab intellectu acceptas fert ideas abstractas ilas in concreta exequi et in intuitus commentare saepe numero non posse haec autem reluctantia subjectiva mentito ut plurimum repugnantiam adequam objectivam et in cautos facile fallit limitibus quibus mens humana circumscribitu pro is habitis quibus ipsa rerum essentia continetur critics who are most ready to bring this charge of pedantry and unintelligibility are the most apt to overlook the important fact that besides the language of words there is the language of spirits sermo interior and that the former is only the vehicle of the latter consequently their assurance that they do not understand the philosophic writer instead of proving anything against the philosophy may furnish an equal and ceteris paribus even a stronger presumption against their own philosophic talent great indeed are the obstacles which an english metaphysician has to encounter amongst his most respectable and intelligent judges there will be many who have devoted their attention exclusively to the concerns and interests of human life and who bring with them to the perusal of a philosophic system an habitual aversion to all speculations the utility and application of which are not evident and immediate to these i would in the first instance merely oppose an authority which they themselves hold venerable that of lord bacon non inutile scientiae existimandae sunt quarum in se nullus as usus si ingenia acuant et ordinent there are others whose prejudices are still more formidable inasmuch as they are grounded in their moral feelings and religious principles which had been alarmed and shocked by the impious and pernicious tenets defended by hume priestley and the french fatalists or necessitarians some of whom had perverted metaphysical reasonings to the denial of the mysteries and indeed of all the peculiar doctrines of christianity and others even to the subversion of all distinction between right and wrong i would request such men to consider what an eminent and successful defender of the christian faith has observed that true metaphysics are nothing else but true divinity and that in fact the writers who have given them such just offence were sophists who had taken advantage of the general neglect into which the science of logic has unhappily fallen rather than metaphysicians a name indeed which those writers were the first to explode as unmeaning secondly i would remind them that as long as there are men in the world to whom the nothi seoten is an instinct and a command from their own nature so long will there be metaphysicians and metaphysical speculations that false metaphysics can be effectually counteracted by true metaphysics alone and that if the reasoning be clear solid and pertinent the truth deduced can never be the less valuable on account of the depth from which it may have been drawn a third class profess themselves friendly to metaphysics and believe that they are themselves metaphysicians they have no objection to system or terminology provided it be the method and the nomenclature to which they have been familiarized in the writings of locke hume hartley condiac or perhaps dr reed and professor stuart to objections from this cause it is a sufficient answer that one main object of my attempt was to demonstrate the vagueness or insufficiency of the terms used in the metaphysical schools of france and great britain since the revolution and that the errors which i propose to attack cannot subsist except as they are concealed behind the mask of a plausible and indefinite nomenclature but the worst and widest impediment still remains it is the predominance of a popular philosophy at once the counterfeit and the mortal enemy of all true and manly metaphysical research it is that corruption introduced by certain immethodical aphorisming eclectics who dismissing not only all system but all logical connection pick and choose whatever is most plausible and showy who select 
whatever words can have some semblance of sense attached to them without the least expenditure of thought in short whatever may enable men to talk of what they do not understand with a careful avoidance of everything that might awaken them to a moment's suspicion of their ignorance this alas is an irremediable disease for it brings with it not so much an indisposition to any particular system but an utter loss of taste and faculty for all system and for all philosophy like echoes that beget each other amongst the mountains the praise or blame of such men rolls and volleys long after the report from the original blunderbuss sequacitas as potius et coitio quam consensus et tamen quod pessimum est pusillaminitas ista non sine arrogantia et fastidio se offert i shall now proceed to the nature and genesis of the imagination but i must first take leave to notice that after a more accurate perusal of mr wordsworth's remarks on the imagination in his preface to the new edition of his poems i find that my conclusions are not so consentient with his as i confess i had taken for granted in an article contributed by me to mr southey's omniana on the soul and its organs of sense are the following sentences these the human faculties i would arrange under the different senses and powers as the eye the ear the touch etc the imitative power voluntary and automatic the imagination or shaping and modifying power the fancy or the aggregative and associative power the understanding or the regulative substantiating and realizing power the speculative reason viz theoretica et scientifica or the power by which we produce or aim to produce unity necessity and universality in all our knowledge by means of principles a priori the will or practical reason the faculty of choice germanice willkür and distinct both from the moral will and the choice the sensation of volition which i found reason to include under the head of single and double touch to this as far as it relates to the subject in question namely the words the aggregative and associative power mr wordsworth's objection is only that the definition is too general to aggregate and to associate to evoke and to combine belong as well to the imagination as to the fancy i reply that if by the power of evoking and combining mr wordsworth means the same as and no more than i meant by the aggregative and associative i continue to deny that it belongs at all to the imagination and i am disposed to conjecture that he has mistaken the co-presence of fancy with imagination for the operation of the latter singly a man may work with two very different tools at the same moment each has its share in the work but the work effected by each is distinct and different but it will probably appear in the next chapter that deeming it necessary to go back much further than mr wordsworth's subject required or permitted i have attached a meaning to both fancy and imagination which he had not in view at least while he was writing that preface he will judge would to heaven i might meet with many such readers i will conclude with the words of bishop jeremy taylor he to whom all things are one who draweth all things to one and seeth all things in one may enjoy true peace and rest of spirit end of chapter twelve